to Our Dad Doesn't Like. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Bede. And this is a podcast where Dad and I explore the world of contemporary art together. And this week, we are exploring a very prominent current pop culture phenomenon. Yes, we are. The big cinematic battle between Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yes, whose team are you on, Dad, at the moment? Definitely Barbie. Oh, really? I haven't seen either film, but it's the memories of playing with the Barbie dolls with you that uh, predisposes me to that. Well, that very touching story sort of softens the fact that you're throwing out opinions without actually having any of the information. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, uh, but I look forward to seeing them. Of course, part of the reason why the films are so competitive with each other is that they have very distinctly different aesthetics, which suits our yeah. book very well. Yes, I guess, you know, the, the fact that their releases coincided more or less inevitably pitted them against each other at the box office. Yeah, but then you have, you know, you look at Barbie. I mean, obviously that Barbie pink that and some Mattel toy aesthetic is very bright but then you have the color tones of Oppenheimer which is sort of this green wash or sepia wash over everything obviously reflecting the dark history of the bomb yes it's not really chic to be shambling around in 1940s uh, long trousers covered in desert sands <laughs> oh distressedly puffing on cigarette after cigarette So we thought that today we would pit the two films against each other in another way by discussing an artwork related to Oppenheimer and one related to Barbie. Yeah, brilliant idea. Yeah, so we can see if that reflects your ill-informed support of the Barbie. Well, not necessarily ill-informed, but you are ill-informed on this point, not having seen (laughs) the film yet. Um, But we'll start with Oppenheimer, I think. So would you like to describe the work that I've given you that's connected to Oppenheimer? Yeah, so the the work is actually a photograph of a watch which is destroyed and its hands have stopped at two minutes past 11, um, which was the time that the bomb was dropped that morning on the 9th of August, 1945. So it's, it's a moment of horror frozen in time. And it was taken by a, a Japanese photographer and then subsequently exhibited. Yeah, so this photograph is in the collection now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And as you say, it was taken by Shomai Tomatsu, who lived from 1930 to 2012. So it was obviously um, a child or a teenager during the war. And he became one of the most influential figures in post-war Japanese photography. And he's really well known for uh, his very heavily stylized prints photographic prints and for his investigations of the cultural upheaval in Japan following the war. And he really deeply delves into themes of Americanization and American cultural dominance in the second half of the 20th century, which is obviously also reflected in the dominance of the uh, of Barbie in the toy market now. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting in that frame when he's undertaken this study of Americanization to see this very poignant work 
investigating an incredibly violent action of the US against Japan rather than these social effects that he also looks at in his photography. Yes, it's a it is it's a very touching item and it reminds me of photographs I've seen of um one or other of the sites of the atomic bombs, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, which have the silhouettes of people reflected permanently in the concrete. It, the flash was so bright that it created a, a shadow image of people who had been killed, much, I suppose, in the way that a negative of a film would. Mm. Of course, as you say, the wristwatch was stopped at 11.02 and at, on August 9th in 1945. So that was the bombing on Nagasaki. Would you like to explain a bit more about the bombings? Yeah, well, the physicists had been working on the concept of the use of atomic energy to create explosions for the about five or ten years prior to the actual dropping of the bomb because it became apparent once the concept of nuclear energy was realized that it could be put to either the purposes of power generation or to create explosions and the uh, group that was led by Oppenheimer and of course he was just really a manager in this process despite his prior preeminence in physics at Los Alamos Laboratories was to create or oversee the creation of the bomb. And there was enormous ethical debate within the administration and, of course, among the scientists who knew what the bomb was going to be used for as to whether or not the bomb ought to be dropped, weighing up the enormous casualties that would be incurred in invading Japan versus the enormous casualties that would be inflicted by the bomb and in the end the the latter course was adopted and despite the fact that many people had moral reservations including from what i've read oppenheimer himself although ultimately he agreed with the policy despite the anguish that that caused him and the bombs were dropped and of course they had a terrible immediate effect and then a long-term after after effect with radiation sickness yeah, I mean, over the next two to four months after the bombs were dropped, the effects apparently killed sixty to 80,000 people in Nagasaki alone, uh, with roughly half of those on the first day. It's shocking, really awful. But sort of showing, I guess, also the randomness of this, although it's painted as a very tailored, I guess, military operation. I mean, you have the story, which is also shown in the film, that Nagasaki was put in put on the list of sites as targets in place of Kyoto on the request of Henry L. Stimson, who was then the Secretary of War in the US, who had honeymooned in Kyoto some years before and had, you know, really loved it. And he said, oh, well, it's a place of such cultural significance. We can't drop the bomb there. But he was also kind of like, oh, and it's a great holiday destination. I can recommend it. Well, it's really terrible isn't it um, you know there's a randomness there uh, about deciding who lives and who dies i had no idea that that was that was factored into the decision making yeah and just showing the impact of you know who is in the room at times when these critical decisions are made can have such a massive effect 
Um, but turning to what you were saying about Oppenheimer himself, I mean, there are mixed reports about the level of moral hurt that he actually felt in the aftermath of all this. I mean, there are many varying stories. I mean, there's a story of him going to the president's office and expressing his upset and then was it Truman saying, you know, get this crybaby or don't let this crybaby back in my office. So obviously indicating that he had been quite upset about it, but then stories that later in life, he and his wife would sort of walk around quite happily and proud on the anniversary of the bombing. Yes, and I've heard um, a The Rest is History podcast about Oppenheimer, and it does seem to have been an ambivalence about exactly what he thought about the dropping of the bomb. I think he recognises the recognised the enormity of it, but he didn't accept it as being immoral. Mm. I mean, you have more knowledge about this than I. Do you think that the war could have been won without dropping the bombs? And then the following on from that being, if it could have been won, could it only have been won through more loss of life than with the bombs? I mean, the other problem is then that the evaluation that the Americans were making was obviously that they would have a massive loss of military life in trying to invade Japan, but that's very different from a massive loss of civilian life. Yes, I think this decision has to be seen in the context of how painful in terms of loss of men the Pacific campaign had been because there was really dogged Japanese defense, particularly uh, on Okinawa, which is part of Japan itself and a tiny island. And the prospect of going through all that in invading the much larger Japanese mainland was something that the Americans just couldn't contemplate. They did say, well, it would save more civilian lives as well. But I don't know whether that was just a cover for for the reasoning. The other thing is we just don't know how a how long Japan could have lasted. I mean, they were running out of oil because, of course, the places in, in Southeast Asia that they'd invaded in order to secure oil supplies at the time of the outbreak of the war were now no longer available to them. And I think that the Navy was so diminished that the Americans could have blockaded Japan. But then how long would that blockade have had to last? Mm. So I think the war would have lasted longer, would, would definitely last longer, would probably have involved more casualties than if the bomb had been dropped. But I think, you know, this is a, a an unresolved moral dilemma in any war in which there are civilian casualties. And the same questions emerged in relation to the bombing of Germany. And of course, subsequently in Vietnam, Iraq, any place you might care to mention. Yeah. I mean, you also have very clearly in this work, showing a stopped watch, this idea of time stopping, indicating the massive ramifications of that single moment on many lives, but also on a whole society. Shomai Tamatsu, the, the photographer here, describes what it was like growing up in and in the aftermath of the war and says 
that to have experienced only suffering, that is the characteristic of the children who knew the war. And he also said that after the defeat, darkness and light became clearly visible and values shifted 180 degrees. My most impressionable years were spent during those times and that intense experience became a filter through which I've seen things ever since. I mean, you have this idea that that moment, that time, I mean, obviously not just the dropping of the bomb, but the impact of the whole war on that generation, which I think is the same for the war generation around the world, did indeed become a filter through which they considered how one lives one's life and one's values. And I think it's very poignant here that with this talk of darkness and light and filters, that photography itself becomes such a strong metaphor for how we look at the world. I mean, it's very obvious in any case because you always have the photographic apparatus that you're putting up to your eye, framing how you see the world. But in this case, I think it's particularly strong. Yes, it's it's that, you know, often the very personal items that have been worn by someone signals their lack of ex ongoing existence. Mm. What really surprised me, though, was in, in, in the background information you sent was that in 1960, Oppenheimer actually went and lectured in Kyoto. I would have thought that the Japanese would have been appalled at, at him visiting. It's just uh, scarcely believable. Yeah, it is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, how do you square having the person who project managed the bombs way to Japan coming to speak to them? I mean, but by that time, how long were the, the Americans in Japan occupying Japan? Well, the occupation uh, began, of course, straight after the surrender, and General Douglas MacArthur was appointed as the administrator of Japan. And he actually was someone who was quite sensitive to the Japanese, particularly their adulation of the emperor. And there were a lot of voices in the US who said that the emperor should be among those who were tried at the war. Uh, crimes trials, but MacArthur resisted that and said, "Look, if you do, if you do something to the emperor, you basically destroy Japanese society." Mm. I can't remember the year in which elections were held and authority was returned to civilian rule. I would imagine it was sometime in the late forties. But of course, American forces have been stationed in Japan with the agreement of of the Japanese ever since. And it was a major staging point for the Americans in during the Korean War. Um, mm. And, of course, there have been some waves of anti-Americanism because of that. But, yeah, no, the Americans were there and have been there for a long time. Maybe it's also indicative the fact that he could go there <laughs> to give this lecture. Maybe that's also partly indicative of this Americanization or you know, this constant tension between the will to forget the horrors of war. I mean, as Tamatsu describes, living under the shadow of suffering and the will to remember, as shown through his artwork, I mean, it's a constant tension. But I think maybe more amazing than the fact that his going there didn't cause massive outrage is the fact that he felt comfortable going there. 
Yes. I, I, I sometimes get the impression that the, the Japanese really did appreciate the fact that the post-war constitution, which was largely written under MacArthur's oversight, embedded democracy or created democracy for the first time, and they took it very enthusiastically. So it was almost like having a friend that you were embarrassed of. You know, they, they were friendly with the Americans, and yet there must have been a bit of awkwardness involved in the fact that the Americans had caused such a terrible loss of life. Yeah, well, it's like when I talk to people I know who've been your <laughs> students at the university and you've given them some really mean mark and I feel embarrassed of you. Do you say, oh, well, Harris is a very common name. I'm not necessarily <laughs> <laughs> I sort of stroke my chin and I say, oh, I don't, I don't think I know him. Anyway, on a final note on this artwork, I thought it's, again, one of these sort of spine-tingling, chilling um, additions that one of the planes accompanying the planes that were actually carrying the bombs to both Hiroshima and Nagas- uh, Nagasaki was called the Great Artiste. Oh, gosh, that's a very strange name to give oh. to it. <laughs> and then when you have the combination with this artwork, it becomes even um, worse. So, uh, yeah, always this contrast between, I guess, those playful notes and the horror of what happened is really horrible. But on that dark note, what's your rating of this artwork? Well, it's it's a, it's a, a good piece of art in the sense that it brings home in a very simple way a very powerful story Mm. well do you feel like you need a bit of a lift to your mood now i think so yes (laughs) okay well let's bring in the competitor this is an artwork uh inspired well related to barbie and the barbie film so One of the um, main interesting bits of news to come out about the Barbie film was that their marketing budget was reportedly 150 million, which was more than the 145 million spent on actual production of the film. That's astounding. It really is. But I think, which just reflects the commercial forces at work in the creation of this film. Um, And also, I think, though, the power of Barbie aesthetics that you even have, I guess, so much aesthetic fuel for marketing that you could spend that much money. Yeah, I know. You'd be able to paint the world pink around the equator for that amount of money. Well, have you heard this story that apparently the world ran out of some particular shade of pink paint because they were using so much of it on the set? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so actually it wouldn't be possible to do what you do. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> on the note of Barbie aesthetics, the work that we're talking about is by Catherine, Catherine Terre, who is a French artist, uh, and this is a depiction of a painting that you might already know, but with a twist. Yes, so I've, I've looked at the link and it, it appears that she has reproduced in using Barbie dolls uh, montages which are reminiscent of, strongly reminiscent of, replications of famous artworks. And the one in particular that uh, you focused on is the death of Marat, 
or mm. Marat. I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, I don't the think it's Marat. I don't think French people would like to hear that. <laughs> or I'm Marat. Um, <laughs> uh, who was had uh, a skin condition which made him very itchy. It sounds like a, a cat with mange. Um, so he was scratching all the time and he had to spend a lot of his time in, in a bath. Yeah. And he was stabbed by a woman named Charlotte Corday. Mm. It was one of, I understand it was one of these ideological disputes within the French Revolution that progressively became more and more and more radical. Mm. And a famous painting by uh, David of him uh, lying in the bath with the blood pouring from his chest uh, has been replicated, but with a Barbie lying in that pose. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't say the painting was by David or Dave, you know. <laughs> but yes, um, in fact, I thought you might like this reference because Marat, like Churchill, worked a lot in the bath. And in fact, when he was having this, since he had to spend so much time there, as you say, itching away, at the time that he was killed, he was in the bath correcting a proof of his newspaper, The Friend of the People, and the blood-soaked page was preserved after his death. Gosh, um, really? So not as much fun in the bath as Churchill had, who was puffing on cigars and drinking champagne and feeding chocolate to dogs. But, um, and it's not really something you can do anymore because you can't really take a computer into the... <laughs> theme-filled bathroom because you'll destroy yeah. it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's lucky that Marat could just write with pen and ink. Yeah, although I think that that must, I mean, if you dropped your stuff in the water, then... Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not as bad as dropping a computer in the water, but still. Um, so, yes, here Gardas has recreated this very famous painting, but using Barbie. And it's from a series that she made called Passel Kuvukwae, which means not the ones you think. So obviously playing on this fact that when you first see the paint the, see the image, you think first of the art historical original, but then in fact it is not the one that you think. So what do you think that the artist is doing here, replacing primarily men in these art historical paintings with Barbies. Let's really well, see how much you've learned, picked up. Well, I suppose here I'm expected to acknowledge the fact that women haven't been given the degree of prominence in art that they are entitled to, and that therefore this is a, what's the word, a challenge to the patriarchy by replacing uh, the male characters with a female one. So we've got a, a Barbie Mara instead of the actual Mara. And when we look at it, we think, hold on a minute, that's a Barbie doll, not a man. Surely that means that women should be able to do other things as well as being put laying down their lives for the French Revolution. Have I been sufficiently attentive to the lesson you've been trying to teach? Yes, I think so. I mean, you can always improve, but that is sufficient for now. I mean, there is always this idea that Barbie, I mean, she's had thousands of careers now in the various sets that you can buy. I mean, you bought me, I mean, aside from the Princess Barbies, 
teacher Barbie, vet Barbie, I don't know which other specific career ones I had. And then, of course, in the games we played, she had many other careers, a lot of spies. Yes, and singers and teachers, and we'd have one Barbie doll being the teacher and then all the others, you know, I'd make them play up in class and not pay attention. And and, uh, and another thing I would try and do in, in the Barbie games we had was to introduce an element of danger. So I'd say, okay, let's have a, a Barbie game set in ancient Rome. And you'd, uh, you know, naively go along with that suggestion. And then I'd have one of the Barbies say, isn't it getting rather dark? And what's that trembling? And the other one would come and say, oh, Vesuvius has erupted. <laughs> or we'd be having some nice princess game and then there'd be a people's revolution and the guillotine would appear. And, <laughs> I mean, luckily we had some Barbies that had already lost their heads, which was quite useful for that. Yeah. But another thing we discovered was that the Barbies had lots of little puncture wounds in their hands, a couple of them. And we found that was because um, you'd left the drawer open or their hands had been sticking out and one of our cats, Marmaduke, had taken to chewing on them. I don't know why he did that, but, yeah, so there were all these little teeth marks on them. Yeah, well, maybe we could have made um, an art historical piece replicating some painting of someone experiencing stigmata using them. Yes, yeah. One of those dramatic uh, paintings like the the hunt of the hippopotamus, the hippopotamus hunt with someone being hunted by this great orange cat. Yeah, well then of course also speaking of hunts, we had the Bratz dolls too. And for them you didn't just change their shoes, you actually popped their whole foot off with the shoe on it. Oh, yes. So then we would have a shark attack. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, And the whole foot would be bitten off. So, yes. I mean, obviously really important in childhood to make children aware of the dangers that can occur in real life. So you really, you did well with that. Um, <laughs> as you say, there are feminist undertones to these works. Um, and that, of course, recalls Linda Nochlin. Do you remember who she was? I've talked to you about her before, but. No, I'm sorry. Was she Was she? She wasn't the wife of the guy who did the Blucher and and Wellington and Napoleon sticks. No. The very acerbic. No. Critic. no. Okay. And God, you know, God, you didn't learn anything from that podcast either. We're not meant to say the wife of. She's her own person. <laughs> You've already, first of all, you got the person entirely wrong. And then you defined her in relation to her husband. God. <laughs> You know, you need to look at more pictures of the Barbies to try and get this lesson to sink in. But no, Linda Nochlin was the sort of fountainhead figure of the whole feminist reassessment of art history. And she wrote this um, very prominent essay, Why There Have Been No Great Women Artists, responding to this question that was often posed to her by colleagues you know, male colleagues who would say, you know, why haven't there been any great women artists? And obviously the first reaction one has to that, the immediate reaction, automatic reaction, is to start listing all the women artists that one knows. The point that she made in this essay 
was not actually, was that we shouldn't fall into this trap of saying, oh, well, there's Frida Kahlo and Artemisia Gentileschi. There's this person's wife and that person's wife, which is apparently the path that you would start going down. <laughs> but rather to look at the institutional factors rather than the individual factors. So what were the preconditions for achievement in the arts that could not be fulfilled for women to to explain why it was institutionally made impossible for women to achieve artistic excellence or success um, on the same footing as men or um, to achieve equity with men, no matter what the potency of their so-called talent was. I mean, to say Linda Nochlin says, and I say here, so-called talent, because it, it isn't all about talent. I mean, someone can be incredibly talented, but if society doesn't give you equity of opportunity, then that talent can still exist, but sort of in a vacuum of yes. social fulfillment. Sure. But I mean, just to return to your critique of my critique of the art, at least I don't say refer to Mrs. Diego Rivera instead of Frida Kahlo. You must say I've come somewhere along the road. Well, I'm not sure that comparing, you know, your level of feminism with that of, so what was that, a New York Times or something like that article in the 30s? Mrs. Diego Rivera is also an artist. That was actually, Did someone say that? Yeah, it was in some really? paper article. You know when Diego Rivera went to New York to paint this mural? Um, yes. And there was some article saying, here's this mural he's painted, blah, blah, blah. Frida Kahlo is Diego Rivera's wife. She is also a very talented <laughs> artist, you know, but kind of like, oh, here's her little hobby painting yes. away. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very common thing. So, yes, at least you are better than a 1930s newspaper man. Uh, <laughs> the bar high. But something interesting about the artist's approach here with using Barbies um, and also sometimes Ken in these recreations of uh, great works from art history is that often she paints the clothes onto the dolls or paints colour onto their skin when necessary for the artwork. And she says that this comes from the artist's desire to so-called dress the dolls while leaving them naked and that there begins a duality that never leaves the work. So it's this idea of dressing the dolls through painting directly onto them could be seen as a reflection of the way that we imprint ideas onto objects or indeed people when we objectify them. Yes, I, it, you know, it, 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 it was interesting. One was sort of so, so focused on the Barbie face that you almost bypass the fact that the clothes are being painted on them rather than that they're being worn. Mm. And it's, it's very effective in, in that series. Uh, a couple of the paintings I, I didn't recognize, but most of them I did, like Edvard Munch's The Scream mm. and that American pastoral with the rather <laughs> grim-faced farmer holding a pitchfork yeah. um, and it's it's very very clever the way it's it's been done am I correct in saying that that one of the paintings is a replica of that 
anatomy lesson of yes. Dr. Tolk. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yet another. So, of course, in our earlier episode, we discussed that painting and a modern take on it where only the hand, which is missing in yeah. the original, is shown. Yeah. She's picked very prominent artworks for this. I mean, what do you think of the fact that she replaces here the mostly male figures with Barbie, who is not a real woman? I mean, do you think that the message is stronger or weaker than if she replaced them with, say, images of ordinary women? I think it's stronger because Barbie is instantly recognisable mm. and you know, is sort of as identified with femininity. So I think the contrast is even greater than it would be if you just used people who weren't so recognizable. Yeah, someone's wife. Some, some yeah. wife. <laughs> I mean, in that way, she also questions paradigms not only about art history, but about Barbie, who's obviously a very contested figure. I mean, there's this story which is very well known that she was inspired by Lily, who was a character from a cartoon in Bild magazine, you know, the German magazine. Yeah. And made this figure made its way to Italy where it became a doll that's more like a joke gift that men would give each other on bachelor parties or that kind of thing, or have like on the dashboard of their car, like you have those bobblehead figures yes. and that this was transformed into a toy for children. Uh, some people take umbrage with that, but I think that that was really just the spark of an idea that became something very different in the Mattel version of the toy. Yeah. I, I had no idea that the German doll had existed and was a model for the the Barbie doll that first came out in 1959. Mm. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. So yeah, it was first first you could buy these dolls, which on the packaging it said "Build Lily," you know, referring to the cartoon and the news, the magazine. But then eventually it was sort of remarketed. They would have had to do some negotiating with the German company to basically take their brand. Well, yeah, in. 1964, Mattel did acquire the rights to the Lily doll and German production stopped. I'm sure whatever amount that they were paid that could never compensate for how big Barbie has become today. I mean, imagine being that person who saw yeah. probably, you know, a couple of thousand Deutschmarks or something and then look at it now. So. It's a lesson to always really consider the future when you're negotiating. Yeah, without a doubt. It's a colossal industry to which uh, I contributed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, some people will either think that you're very feminist for doing that or very not feminist for doing that. So you yes. have to um, pick your audience there. But, um, yeah, I think that's stripping away any deeper discussion, which obviously is also important. There's no doubt that Barbie has provided fuel for the imagination of many children. Around yes, and and uh, I understand that there is even a, a U.S. Supreme Court judge Barbie now. Yeah, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg Barbie. Yeah, yeah. 
So it can't all be that bad. Um, so what do you think of this work and which work do you think has won out this time between Oppenheimer and Barbie? Uh, I, I like it. I like the wittiness of it. And uh, I think it's, yeah, I prefer the, the Barbie montages to the watch, not denying the potency of the watch image. But I I, I think the the Barbie idea is a lot of fun and it, it really, um, it tests your memory of what artwork is this that I'm looking mm-hmm. at a version of. Yeah, it's a good game. But on that note, do you think that... I mean, your preference, sir, is that based on just the fact that the first image is so disturbing or on the quality of the artwork? Um, well, I think perhaps with all due credit to the photographer who, who took a photograph of a distorted watch, more imagination went into the production of the Barbie pictures. So even on a level of creativity, I would say that the Barbie pictures went out. Mm, okay, so you finally settled the Barbie versus Oppenheimer debate. Yes. Oh, very good. Do you have any advice for us? Um, yes, I mean, probably the, the lesson to be learned from Barbie is to embrace your inner child, mm-hmm. enjoy interacting with your children, um, because it just creates a lot of wonderful memories. Yeah, and keep Barbie safe from cats using them as yes. terrible lion attacked Barbies in our stories. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Art Dad Doesn't Like. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Art Dad Pod, and we will be back in a fortnight with another episode. We will see you then. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye.